0: Father, we thank you for this great morning and we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather to worship you. And what a wonderful time of worship that we have had. Great are you, Lord. Father, we ask that um, you would meet us in this place and that you would do business in our heart. We give you freedom to do that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would awaken in us a, a greater desire follow you, to chase hard after you. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Are you liking, loving the outcome? I didn't know that they were going to announce uh, the hot tub, so if you do come over, uh, please let us know ahead of time. That could get awkward for both of us, so... Glad that you are here this morning. I'm going to start with a statement um, that's a little bit bit challenging. I just want you to ponder it and wrestle with it for a second. Uh, We're in this series called, uh, What Are You Afraid Of? And this morning we're talking about the fear of disappointing God. So here's the statement. The Christian life becomes most difficult and challenging when we set our sight on pleasing God more than trusting God. Two thoughts I have this morning from Hebrews 11.6. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there, uh, or if you're using U version, maybe you're familiar with this verse, and I'll pull in some other scripture here. But the first thought is this, the weight of disappointing God. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And again, maybe you're familiar with that verse. But if it's not enough to feel like we disappoint many people in our life, the weight and the thought of disappointing God, I don't know about for you, but it's unbearable. Pleasing God implies that we live striving to be all that God wants us to be. In, in theory, it sounds good. But think about this for just a moment. If pleasing God can only happen if and when we're all that God wants us to be, then I'm exhausted already just thinking about it. I'm already tired because it clearly implies that we have to be busy, that, that, that we have to be doing something. It paints this picture of getting after it, working hard, being passionate, being active, just so God will be happy with me, just so God will be pleased with me almost like we have to perform for God. So he's pleased with us. Uh, Here's another uh, thought-provoking question. Can a child of God disappoint God? To disappoint someone means they are unhappy because something they hoped for or expected didn't turn out the way that they had thought. Or someone or something was not as good or worse than they expected. That's the idea behind what it means to disappoint. So one Sunday, there was a youth pastor who took a three-inch galvanized nail that was really, really sharp, and he gave it to all the students, and put this in your pocket. I want you to carry this around. And every time you have an impure thought, or every time you sin, or or do something you think that that is contrary to God's word, I want you to stick your hand in your pocket and poke yourself on that nail, because I want you to be reminded that the uh, that way you'll be reminded of the Pain that you're causing God, he said, and you'll know how disappointed he is with you in that moment when you poke yourself. I want to dig a little bit uh, deeper into this idea of disappointing God. To say that God is disappointed with us means that he thought we would do one thing, but we chose to do another thing. Do you know what that means? If God thought we would do one thing and he's disappointed because we did something different, it's to say that God is surprised by our actions. He's surprised on the choices that we make. And that puts us into question a true and biblically accurate view of God. And it's back to that question of his sovereignty. Is he sovereign or not? Is he omnipotent in all power or not? Is he omniscient and all knowing or not? Because to say God is sovereign says that he is omnipotent and omniscient. If God is sovereign, then he knows the events that will unfold in our lives down to the littlest itty-bitty detail every second of every day. He knows the details before we even know the details. So the scripture tells us a different and more accurate explanation of God. Does God know us? And we're asking the first question, is God surprised? Because surprise leads to disappointment. So Psalm 139, one through six is this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in from behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So does he know us? The scripture leads us to believe that God knows everything about us. God knows us perfectly, far beyond the ability to know ourselves. And I think most of us in this room would say, I know myself pretty well. He knows our heart, meaning that he knows our will and our emotions. He knows everything about our life, whether we're standing, whether we're sitting. What does that imply? Every endeavor in our life. He knows it all. He knows our thoughts before they become our thoughts. He knows our whereabouts, and he's fully aware of everything we'll do. He knows the words that will become spewing out of our mouth before they're even in our heads. He goes ahead of us in life. We cannot escape his presence, no matter what. He knows the number of breaths we'll take before we leave this earth. Is God surprised? Is, is does this surprise lead to disappointment, friends? There's no surprising God. Scripture assures us that God is fully aware of us. So let's take that one off the table. So if God can't be disappointed because he he is surprised by our actions and behavior, maybe he can be disappointed in us because of our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want you to hear verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Is God angry with you? Is God frustrated with you? Is God disappointed with you? If he is, then naturally he's disappointed in us. We are asking some hard questions this morning, but the answer to these questions really help us formulate our, our framework or our view of disappointment. There are certainly some modern day fundamentalists, one whom shouted to his congregation, I just want you to imagine, God hates you. Some of you, God is sick of you. God is frustrated with you. God is wearied by you. God has suffered long enough because of you. Can you imagine sitting in a sermon like that? And then at the end, they say, oh, let's, let's all stand and sing, your love never fails. It never gives up on me. Now, don't hear me say that God is only lovey-dovey, because sometimes pastors get accused of that when we, when we talk about the love of God, and, or He's not disappointed in us, or He's not, well, all you care about is the love of God. What about the rest of the characteristics of God? Don't hear me say that He's only lovey-dovey. Don't hear me say that God isn't a just God, or that He doesn't discipline us, or that He doesn't hate sin. He absolutely does. There are times when God takes us and he he gently corrects us and disciplines us. And then there are times, I can think of times in my life where he's almost grabbed my hand and took me out behind the woodshed, if you know what I mean. Because I needed to be disciplined even more. But God's justice and discipline do not assume disappointment. His justice and discipline flow from his righteousness. All of God's anger, all of God's wrath, all of God's frustration was emptied out on Christ in that moment. Paul said God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God has no wrath left for those who are in Christ. If you're a believer here this morning, he has no wrath left for you. It was poured out on the cross. He directed it all towards Jesus. Disappointment suggests not only an element of surprise, but also it suggests this frustration and this anger. In order for God to be frustrated with us, he would have to circumvent the entire gospel and his own son's death on the cross to do that. I want you to hear First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, not to pour out his anger on us. When you look at the cross you see two things. And two things that are usually mutually exclusive. There is what I would call this enormous collision that happens at the cross. It's a collision of love and wrath. And it's this bam. So when you see the cross, it's this, it's this unconditional love and it's this wrath colliding at the cross. And the cross has on full display both God's love and his wrath. His love is displayed in that he sent his son to die for us. Sinners in need of salvation, His wrath, and that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, not counting our sins against us. So the cross is this beautiful display of the full counsel of God. But pastor, what about Hebrews eleven six? It is impossible to please God, is what it says. It seems conflicting. Hebrews 11, 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God. Why would a person believe that they could disappoint God? Why would you believe that? Maybe it's a wrong view of God. Some people view God with expectations that are unattainable. Therefore, because they can't meet these, these lofty expectations, He's disappointed with us. Some people grew up in that kind of a home. The, you know, there, there's some truth about sometimes the way that we're raised or the experiences we have in relationships. We transfer all that to God and our relationship with God. Maybe you grew up in that kind of home and, and you just, well, I can't meet these expectations. Some people live under the weight of a false belief that we need to somehow repay God for all of the wrongs that we do. If he's disappointed with me, then I have to get his approval back is the idea. If I can make him disappointed with me and I can make him frustrated with me and and displeased with me, then I also have to have the power and the ability to make it so he's not disappointed with me or frustrated or displeased with me. You can't have one without the other. So suddenly, my motivation is to live in a relationship with God whereby I possess the ability to control God's feelings towards me by what I do or don't do, how I live or don't live. Can you just imagine the danger if we had that ability? Unconditional love says there are no conditions attached, meaning I could really make a big mess of my life and God will not and cannot stop loving me. It is who he is, it isn't what he does, it's who he is. In the context of human relationships, there is imperfection, brokenness, we're all fallen because of our sin, but in relationship with God, we, listen to this, we have been made right. Pleasing God is a great motivation. It just can't be our driving motivation. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves on this hamster wheel of doing everything perfect so God won't be disappointed with us. It is impossible to do enough good to make God happy. If we could, then God could have spared his son. Because we would be creative enough to, to manufacture all kinds of ways to please God without ever needing to trust him. The second idea, the freedom in trusting God. So I flip-flopped the verse. We looked at the second half first. I want to go back to the first half. And without faith is where we want to camp for a couple of minutes. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Maybe you've heard the analogy of a of a biblical covenant marriage um, that's that's found in Genesis between a man and a woman, and its the idea of taking uh, this analogy is the idea, of taking two pieces of paper and like if I wrote Andy on one and Lori on the other, and then I put those two pieces together facing each other, and then I laminated that. That's the idea of this this uh, covenant one uh, becoming one in marriage, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, so it's becoming one. If you take a, a two pieces of paper that have been laminated together and try to tear them apart, it's almost impossible. You'd have to rip the whole thing apart. In this verse, there are two key words that are laminated together that answer the question, is God disappointed with me? And the two words are faith and please. And we've already looked at the word please. Now, let's look at the word faith and see how they go together. I think this is the good part of Hebrews eleven six. Faith means to believe or to trust. So the thought of pleasing God is married to our trust in God. Pleasing God is the result of trusting him. It's not about what you can do or you don't do. Our trust is in who he is and what he has done for us, not in what we can do. Our trust is just simply in him, period. When you place your trust in God, he is pleased with you. Romans 5, 8 through 11 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As believers in Christ, you have been made right in your relationship with him, you're a new creation you're at peace with God, you're no longer his enemy. Someone once said it like this, we please God by choosing to trust him. When our main drive becomes growing in our trust, a whole new world opens up to us. So if your pursuit and all your energy and all your motivation is shifted from trying to get God to be pleased with you to growing in trusting him, just imagine this for a second, a whole new world is opened up. We, we get to excel, we get to breathe a little bit, trusting that God has already transformed us from sinner to saint. And now that's our primary identity. We can begin opening up and trusting others with the hard areas of life that we're afraid to sometimes. And the reason we can do that is because we know that who we are has already been decided and settled by God. And when we know that and we live in that truth, it makes it a lot easier. We can finally rest knowing that we're fully accepted and loved. God's primary emotion toward us today and every day is love. And we receive it knowing that we have done zilch to deserve it. There is nothing that we can do today to make make him love us more. Nothing we might devise to make him love us less. He simply loves because he is love. That's just who he is. As the late Brennan Manning described God in his classic book, The Rag Muffin Gospel. He says this, he is not moody, He knows no seasons of change. He has a single relentless stance toward us. He loves us. He's the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. False gods, the gods of human manufacturing, despise sinners. But the Father of Jesus loves all, no matter what they do. But of course, this almost too incredible for us to accept. He goes on and says this. Because his love is so incredible and incomprehensible, many have swung in the wrong direction have created a God who either seethes at our failings and falters, blunders, and mishaps, a God who peers over our shoulders whispering, you're gonna have to pay for that, a God who is irritable and rigid, perhaps resembling our earthly fathers, but this is not the God of the gospel. Allow me to throw a twist in here. When it comes to us and it comes to God, and it comes to the possibility of him being disappointed with us. What if God were in fact not disappointed with us, but rather disappointed for us? The Bible indicates that he wants for us what he sees best. He wants us to experience a life of joy, abundance, and fulfillment, but he recognizes that we often choose paths that lead us away from the very things that he has for us, right? Imagine applying this idea of God being disappointed for us rather than at us. Imagine you have a friend uh, who has cheated on their spouse and they come to you and they say, do you think God is disappointed with me? And you respond by saying, I believe God is disappointed for you. And then they respond, what do you mean by that? Well, imagine God saying this to you. I am disappointed for you because I had so much I wanted you to experience and enjoy in marriage the way I designed it. I'm disappointed for you because I wanted you to have a healthy, thriving marriage filled with unconditional love and joy. I wanted so bad for you to have in your marriage what so many are missing and lacking. I'm disappointed for you because like you, I wanted something different and better. But though... I'm disappointed for you. I'm still with you. Jesus said in John 3:17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. So today we remember that Jesus came for the spiritually weak. Is that you? It's me. For the broken people that's me, for imperfect lives, that's me, people who don't have it all together, that's me, for the serial failures and habitual mess ups, God is not disappointed with you, but I'm pretty certain because you are not perfect, he's disappointed for you and we press on to live lives that are biblical and pleasing to him in such a way where his disappointment for us, that little mind shift, it becomes less and less because we're learning to live godly lives. If God is disappointed with us and not for us, then he's always disappointed in us. When is he, when isn't he? Is he disappointed now? Is he he not disappointed now? I wake in the morning and before my feet hit the floor, I no doubt have a selfish, sinful thought. How many times have I sinned before lunch? Do I go to bed every night thinking God is disappointed in me or for me, knowing that he loves me and that I have been made right with him. Let me leave you with one thing, and it's just the last part of the verse. Maybe you can mold us around a little bit this week. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God, thank you for your word. and. It is my prayer, Lord, that we leave here today knowing that, um, in a sense, it's this idea of being sad because that's the disappointed for us because of the things that you had for us the things that you wanted us to experience but not disappointed in us because we are a child of yours. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are your children and you have so much that you long for, for us to experience in you. God, I pray that our energy and our focus and our passion would be this drive to grow in our trust of who you are, our our biblical God. Thank you, God, for your forgiveness. And and I, I pray, Lord, that none of us leave this room thinking, oh, now I get to go live however I want. That's not it at all. But that our desire would be to live for you and grow in our trust of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would continue to do a deep work in us, knowing that we are messed up people that can gather in a place like this, each coming in with their own story, and that you meet us right where we're at every single one of us. Even if we come to church and we put on this happy face and we present to everybody else that, man, everything's great, that you know us and you meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen.